0: Extreme poverty is not something that can be understood by statistics alone. You need imaginative imagery as much as numbers to get a grasp of it. Poverty is a landscape that transports a person back in time. The poorer the place, the further back you go. The first place I entered the time machine was in the Kurdish lands. It was 1996, and there was major fighting between Kurdish groups in northern Iraq. Saddam Hussein had gotten involved. Big news. But to get to Iraq, I had to fly to Diyarbakir in southeastern Turkey, then drive four hours to the border crossing. Eventually, the story would take me from Iraq to the lower slopes of the Zagros Mountains, somewhere just inside Iran, where the losing fighters had fled for their lives. Each mile traveled sent me further back in time. Filth, ruin, and decay marked the towns. There was no modern organization to the society at first glance. Teeming, frantic crowds of men scrambled for work along the roadside. In the distance, women and children could be seen washing clothes in the little streams that sluggishly cut across the plain in the late summer heat. The fighting I had gone to report on had a similar backwards-in-time feeling. There was no good reason for it, except Kurdish clans fought. It was part of the culture. A pretext could always be found. This time it had to do with smugglers' taxes on oil being sent out of Iraq illegally— The bloodletting started and finished within a few weeks. The poverty, the disorganized society, the mindless combat could be explained in large part by the fact that the Kurds live in limbo. In crossing from Turkey into Iraq and then from Iraq into Iran, I had never left Kurdistan. I could have gone into Syria or up into Armenia and never left Kurdistan. The Kurds are a nation without a country. The fighting I saw showed an awareness of this. I was traveling with a group of Peshmerga, the Kurdish word for soldier. It means men who face death. They were from the Kurdistan Democratic Party, one of the two factions involved in the conflict. The KDP Peshmerga were winning and had chased fighters from the other faction, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, out of the capital of the Iraqi Kurdish safe area, Erbil. The PUK. had retreated over the only road open to their stronghold of Suleimania at a place called Diegala was a short bridge, a couple of trestles holding the road over a deep, narrow gorge. The PUK tried to defend the bridge, but when they were about to be overrun, the fighters retreated over it. For some reason, they failed to blow up the bridge. That simple action would have halted the KDP advance and given them time to get to safety. Instead, my small column of KDP fighters rolled over the still-intact bridge. A couple of kilometers down the road, I watched them attack some PUK Peshmerga. The PUK men died. If the PUK had blown up the Diegala Bridge, those men would not have met their fate. That evening, I asked a UN soldier stationed in Erbil, Why? Why didn't they blow up the bridge? He said it was the nature of the fighting among the Kurds. They don't destroy infrastructure as they retreat because the side that is losing always figures it'll be coming back next week and resuming ordinary life. It was their country, after all. Welcome to Kurdistan was how I was greeted by the KDP's liaison person for the foreign press, Sami Abdulrahman. The phrase echoed Jerry Adams when I had met him for the first time a few years earlier in Belfast. Welcome to Ireland journalists get used to these greetings. Later, the first time I visited the West Bank, I was told, welcome to Palestine. It's a common figure of speech used by those who represent the national aspirations of people caught on the wrong side of history's never-ending border changes, when they meet journalists or representatives from the amorphous mass called the international community. It's a way of denying the reality of lines on maps. I mean, What are they, anyway? No more than the point of view of the hegemonic powers at a given moment in time. The Kurds loom large in my search for an answer to the question, what is a nation? We use the term interchangeably with country, yet Kurdistan is a nation that is not a country, at least in the geopolitical sense, although it should be and almost was. I can't hide behind a journalist's professional impartiality when I tell you about Kurdistan— I love the place. Its beauty is raw and epic. I could travel for days in the Turkish and Iraqi parts of the country, the parts I know best. The countryside touches my soul. Razor backed ridges march towards Iran, each a little higher than those in front, snowfields glistening into the distance. The long narrow ridges are separated by wide, fertile valleys. In spring, they're as green as any pasture in Ireland. By midsummer, they're roasted to the golden color of a lion's pelt. One of the dearest friends of my adult life was a Kurd. He's dead now, but he taught me everything he could about the land and his people. He taught me during the day, as we drove ridge by ridge to watch the war to overthrow Saddam in 2003, He taught me at night in the furnitureless front room of his house of exile, in Arbil, as the ground rumbled underneath us from B-52 strikes 40 miles away on his hometown, Mosul. My friend Ahmed took me to Kurdish Christian villages and Kurdish Yezidi villages and abandoned Kurdish Jewish villages. We went to Muslim villages where primitive pagan fertility rites that predate Islam by thousands of years were still performed. The idea of nationhood as we mean it didn't exist when these villages were founded, and my guess is, among the Villigians, Ahmed's word for peasants, it doesn't mean much even today. He told me stories about the oil. It puddles up out of the earth at a place called Baba Gurger, not far from Erbil, and in ancient times, women who were infertile came to bathe in it for its power to give them children. Land and culture and history in one place and numbers. There are tens of millions of Kurds, and yet they have no country of their own. The story of how they came to be the largest ethnic group in the world, with no national territory, close to 30 million of them living contiguously but separated by four international borders, is instructive. The Kurdish nation's plight has its origins in the same historical event that gave birth to Iraq, the carve-up of the Ottoman Empire after World War I, The 1920 Treaty of Sèvres was the legal document that divided up what was left of the empire. In that treaty, the Kurds had been promised their own state, in much the same way as the 1917 Balfour Declaration promised Jews a homeland in Palestine. But over the next two years, at subsequent conferences to fill in the details of the Sèvres Treaty, the Allies argued among themselves on the precise details of the maps and how else they might divide the Ottoman spoils. While French and British diplomats wrangled, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk led a revolution that overthrew the last Ottoman sultan and founded the modern state of Turkey. A new treaty, the Treaty of Lausanne, superseded the Treaty of Sevres. It recognized the territorial integrity of Turkey well into the east, the area that was to have been the center of the Kurdish state. Ataturk's commitment to creating a secular democratic nation with mosque and state firmly separated by the new constitution appealed to the Western powers. This new fact on the ground, a secular unified Turkish republic, overrode any commitments made by the great powers to the Kurds, even though the Kurds made up almost a quarter of Turkey's population. When Ataturk took the next step in forging a modern Turkish state, abolishing the notion of Kurdish ethnicity by banning the Kurdish language and all Kurdish customs, the Western powers did nothing. With the Bolsheviks entrenching themselves right up to the eastern slopes of the Caucasus, a secular Turkey, firmly in the Western cap, was too important to risk by honoring previous pledges of creating a Kurdish homeland. So the Kurds today are divided up between Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, countries whose borders were fixed in the Ottoman carve-up. But the Kurds never surrendered those things that make them a nation, their language, culture, and their geographical place and ethnic identity. The Kurds did not assimilate, although their elites did integrate, particularly in Iraq, But their minority status, by and large, condemned them to a lower class of citizenship and poverty. Periodic rebellions against the governments under whom they were trapped brought fierce military repression. This was especially true in Turkey and Iraq, where Kurds make up anywhere between a quarter and a fifth of the population. This led to even deeper poverty. The feeling I had on my first visit in 1996 of going back in time, well, The Kurds in Turkey and Iraq had been bombed and gassed, if not to the Stone Age, then backwards the best part of a millennium. In the villages, there were no paved roads, no running water, no electricity. The only sign of the 20th century was the occasional battered Toyota flatbed truck, probably looted from Kuwait, that passed by, taking whole families to the fields for a day's work. When I ask, what is a nation? The concept of nation is an abstract, But a nation is made up of individuals, each living in real time and place. How does an individual Kurd, born into these circumstances, live his life, become a lifelong revolutionary, and fight for an independent Kurdistan? Accept the situation, integrate into the wider society, and try and improve the situation of his people gradually, fighting only if it becomes necessary. My friend Ahmed chose the latter course, Born in 1952, he came of age in the post-colonial era of new beginnings. He believed in an Iraqi identity that encompassed the complexities of the Iraqi nation. It was multi-ethnic and multi-sectarian and internationalist in outlook. They couldn't torture that view out of him. Like many, he thought the Ba'ath revolution might bring a more equal society about. The fact that it didn't and that before he left university he had already been arrested and abused by the regime, didn't make him change his mind. The dream of Kurdistan was unrealizable for many reasons, not least because, in his view, the Kurdish leaders were as corrupt and undemocratic as Saddam, if not as vicious. It was better to accept the facts of history and build a new Iraq, a nation in which the Kurdish identity the Arab identity, Shia and Sunni and Christian identities were all granted equal respect and rights. Breaking up Iraq to give each of those groups its own country was foolish, in his view. If you're an internationalist, then the borders that define nations are nothing more than lines drawn by the powerful. At places like Sevres and Lausanne, they can be changed. But a nation, like Kurdistan, exists in a space beyond maps." During his life, Ahmed tried to live as if he was creating this society. He married an Arab woman and brought his children up with an Iraqi identity that had, at its core, an acceptance of the heterogeneous nature of the new state that had been created by the Europeans out of the old empire. He was arrested and tortured several times for proselytizing for this kind of Iraq. When the war to overthrow Saddam was over, he left the safety of Kurdistan— and returned to his hometown, Mosul, and started a weekly newspaper of culture and politics arguing for this inclusive Iraq. He was murdered for his trouble. The odd thing about my friend's tragedy is that, in many ways, the choices he made are, for the moment, the choices made by the Kurdish leadership— among the foreign correspondents who went to Kurdistan before the war, there was a lot of giddy speculation about the Kurds breaking away from Iraq once Saddam was gone, sparking war with Turkey and Iran. My colleague sure got that one wrong. So many things have changed since my first visit to Kurdistan in 1996. The KDP and PUK still dominate life, but now they don't fight each other. The man who led the PUK then, Jalal Talabani, is today president of Iraq. The man who led the KDP, Mahsud Barzani, has just handed over to his son as leader of the Kurdistan regional government. Kurdistan in Iraq is as autonomous as a region can be within national boundaries, but it is still part of Iraq. Ahmed had some bitter feelings about the Kurdish leadership, but about their conduct in the big questions of national politics since the war, I don't think he would have complained. Kurdish nationalism in Iraq has been mollified by autonomy. It is not an imminent threat. Over the border in Turkey, it's not a threat either. That's another big change since 1996. Kurdish rebels continue to fight a rearguard action, and the Turkish army uses drones and other ultramodern weapons to fight back. But general repression of Kurds is nothing like it was when I first visited in 1996. Turkey does an enormous amount of trade with Iraq, more than $8 billion in 2011 in a recent report by business consultancy Accenture. The report noted that the bulk of that trade is with the Kurdistan regional government. Soon Iraqi Kurdistan will supplant Germany as Turkey's largest trading partner. Overreacting to rebel provocation would jeopardize that trade. The bulk of Turkish-Kurdish business is related to oil. The last time I traveled to Kurdistan, I didn't feel like I was getting into a time machine. I never left the 21st century. I missed the long, acclimatizing drive through Turkish Kurdistan, watching the mountains grow closer on the horizon. But time is money, and money is certainly what Kurdistan today is all about. You can fly commercially into Erbil, pass through the brand-new airport, stay in a high-rise, ultra-modern hotel drive around the city on a new ring road and head straight to Kirkuk to check out the new oil facilities, which I did. Kirkuk remains a disputed place between Arabs and Kurds, and it is very dangerous, but the surrounding countryside is secure within the Kurdistan region. Gas flares were still flaming out of the hillside as I drove past Baba Gerger. I thought of my murdered friend Ahmed and the night we met and how he told me of the women who came here 4,000 years ago to bathe away their barrenness in the petroleum. I wonder what he would make of this place today. Call it Kurdistan, call it Iraq. A nation is not just internationally recognized boundaries imposed by more powerful forces. A nation is also the sum of individual lives and allegiances and histories lived in one place. That's why Kurdistan is a nation, even if you can't find it on a map.